This week takes us to the Texas-Oklahoma border, where the football captain, the rich kid, and the misfit loner rape and murder the homecoming queen. This is episode 60 of Texas 1031. This is Hannah. This is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. Today, I'm going to be telling you about the murder of Heather Rich. I'm kind of cheating on this one because this case primarily takes place in Oklahoma, but it ends in Texas, so I'm going to allow it. I had originally planned on covering a totally different case entirely. This is the one I mentioned that I had been researching for months and was going to try and get released, but unfortunately, it didn't work out. If I don't get the like kind of main interview, then the episode would be missing a huge chunk of information that I need to make it a complete story. So anyways, that's what's going on with that. I'll keep you posted. I am also sorry this episode is out late. I have been trying to release on Fridays, but last week was crazy because I had family in town and I just couldn't squeeze in the time to record. But Anyways, happy 60th episode, everyone. What a milestone. I can't believe it has taken this long, but we made it. So picture it. Warica, Oklahoma and Montague County, Texas, 1996. I've got 15 pages of narrative, so let's go. Warica, Oklahoma lies on what was once the Chisholm Trail, now US 81, which is a long stretch of highway that threads north from Fort Worth through a succession of fading cattle towns into Oklahoma. Uh, If you can hear my dogs panting, sorry, I went into a quieter room this time, but you know, it is what it is. Here at this kind of intersection of Oklahoma and Texas, an abrupt bend in the river slows its waters enough to allow for crossings, but the river is volatile. This area of the Red River would be the spot where, far off in the distance, missing 16-year-old Heather Rich would be found by a 7-year-old girl and her rancher grandfather one morning in the fall of 1996. The rancher would drive out to the Belknap Creek Bridge and officially discover the high school sophomore gently floating in the current. Heather's face was unrecognizable, not only because she had been floating in the water for some time, but primarily because she had been shot in the back of the head. She could only be identified by her gold signet ring, heart-shaped and inset with a diamond, which had been a present for her 16th birthday. Heather was the quintessential... 90s popular girl. Voted sophomore class favorite, Heather was a Warika Eagles cheerleader and she was nominated for Homecoming Queen just days before she disappeared. Heather wasn't just socially popular and athletic. She was quite the academic, having also made the honor roll. Heather Rich was a petite, natural beauty with blue-gray eyes. She was a bit of an extrovert and loved to laugh. She also didn't shy away from the attention of the boys in her class. Sounds like an all-American, fun girl to have as your friend. 
She seems like a gem. However, in the weeks before her murder, Heather hadn't really been acting herself. She was suspended from school for being drunk while leading cheers at a football game. And around the house, she had become moody and withdrawn. A close friend would later tell the FBI that despite her, you know, um, jovial public persona, Heather was a, quote, very troubled girl, end quote. All anyone knew for sure was that she had slipped out of her bedroom window on a school night just after 11 o'clock and hadn't come home. Warika seemed peaceful and safe, the sort of place where kids couldn't get into too much trouble because there really wasn't much trouble to get into. Dwayne and Gail Rich, Heather's parents, had moved their family there in 1974 and had hoped the town would spare their children from the typical hardships of a big city. One of my dogs literally just like burped and threw up. That's great. Gail was 14 when at a future Farmers of America auction, she asked her father to bid on Dwayne, a sturdy farm boy who was offering a day's labor, you know, in the hopes that she might catch his eye. This is amazing. Okay. So their first date was to a prison rodeo. And the couple married when Gail was 17. I am all about this. What a vibe. Horses in prison. Literally, you can't get any better than that. Um, uh, that Those are two of my favorite things. So Gail was offered a full music scholarship to the University of Oklahoma, but Dwayne wanted her to stay home. So she poured her energies into teaching Sunday school and playing piano at their church instead. Thank you so much, Dwayne. Um, in the summers, Gail sang in local revivals while her children, three boys and Heather, the third born, napped in the pews. Gail stated that, quote, Heather was a naive girl with a big heart, a typical blonde all the way to the roots, end quote. Unfortunately, Heather had the opposite impression of this new and, in her mind, boring town her parents had unfairly dragged her to. Warika had no movie theater, no park, no rec center, no cafes open late. The nearest fast food place then was in Comanche, 17 miles away. Quote, Heather always wanted to break the monotony, says ex-boyfriend Randy Wood. She was always restless. She hated being bored. End quote. We're going to hear more from Randy a lot in this episode. Some nights, Heather would slip out of her bedroom window to smoke a cigarette in the dark. Other nights, she would catch a ride and meander Main Street, the three-block-long strip where teenagers, you know, would line up their pickup trucks and, you know, do the cheesy talk about the night's possibilities, living in the moment as a teenager type thing. Um, the only really reliable entertainment in town, remembers Randy, was getting drunk and partying. Typical small-town bullshit. Heather and her friends would take the scenic drive and cruise the back roads to Lake Warica or out to remote pastures where they could build bonfires and drink and smoke pot. What was passed around as often as marijuana on those country nights was actually meth. <laughs> um, Heather didn't smoke meth at first, but Randy did. Uh, Randy was the captain of the football team and a popular senior. Uh, he was a ruddy broad-shouldered boy who was universally liked, but underneath the bulky uniform and facade was just another lost kid. Heather thrived on male attention and knew how to garner it. Quote, 
If you've got it, flaunt it, she used to like to say. Gail said, quote, she had no idea the power she had over men. Heather assumed everyone had the best of intentions, end quote. The riches forbade Heather to date until she was 16, and after that, she had to double date with her brother Stephen and his girlfriend, a circumstance Heather found mortifying. I have definitely been there with my older brother. So cringe. Heather was a true romantic and maybe a little immature, uh, if anything. Uh, This is great. In a heart-shaped box, she stashed the pieces of gum she was chewing when boys had kissed her with the list of boys' names. Um, Incredibly gross, but amazing. In typical, you know, moody teenage princess fashion, Heather would spend hours up in her bedroom, this, you know, den of pink and white with porcelain dolls and a dressing table with makeup. Heather was meticulous about her appearance, tweezing her eyebrows into precise half moons, and sometimes washing her hair two or three times a day until she had styled it just right. Let's be honest, those were all classic 1996 beauty tragedies all of us millennials probably did. I definitely remember washing my hair way too much. However, Heather's obsession with her appearance took a dark turn starting the summer before eighth grade when she began vomiting to control her weight and she was determined to stay a size two. Randy resented Heather's flirtations with other boys. His own teenage uncertainty was heightened by his kind of, you know, um, like wrong side of the tracks background, if you will. His family was one of the poorest in town. He had never known his father and his mother had a history of drug use. Randy was definitely not set up for success. That's for sure. He started smoking pot in the third grade after stealing it from his mother, and he often had a detached and far-off look in his eye. I'll post pictures of everyone involved in this case on Instagram, but I don't really think Randy was bad-looking or detached-looking back when this took place, but I don't know. That's just me. Still, as a Warika Eagles running back, Randy had earned the respect of his team and the residents around town. According to her family, Heather befriended the underdogs, and that's why she liked Randy. Heather claimed that she felt sorry for him and that she felt like Randy had never been given a chance, really. The relationship between Heather and Randy was intimate, but they would never actually sleep together. The relationship was so low-key that many people, including Heather's parents, mistook them for friends. Heather and Randy liked to sit and talk for hours on end. However, Randy would remember that even after so much time spent together, Heather could seem like a total stranger. She never fully opened up to him or expressed her vulnerability. But also, you kind of have to remember, they're teenagers. They don't really know communication. Everything is hormones, hormones, hormones. And she is keeping her options open, as she should. She's fucking 16. However, Heather was also growing more distant from her parents, who at the time were consumed by a major family crisis. So Dwayne, who was an electrician, had nearly been killed on the job when a transformer blew up, burning him over 65% of his body, okay? His injuries changed him from an involved father and husband into a helpless patient, Skin grafts and physical therapy would follow, and he had to learn to walk again. 
Heather was incredibly involved. She actually fed him and dressed his wounds. And when her mother began, you know, having to work long hours to make ends meet, the cooking and cleaning duties really fell largely to her. So Heather is kind of trying to spin all these plates and keep everything in motion while maintaining her high school identity. The internal destruction that plagued Heather was not just manifesting itself in the form of bulimia, but now Heather had begun to self-harm by cutting herself on her legs. To make things worse, a few weeks after school started, Randy broke up with Heather after hearing a rumor that she had gone skinny dipping at a co-ed pool party. To add insult to injury, within a week of the breakup, an acquaintance of Randy and Heather's named Dennis Wayne Goss, a 20-year-old from the nearby town of Terrell, I think that's how you say it, Terrell, uh, fatally shot himself in the head. Deeply rattled by the breakup and perhaps Dennis's suicide, Heather's behavior grew more erratic and her drug use also increased. Towards the end of September, six days before she disappeared, Heather was drunk on the sidelines at a football game. She was suspended from school for three days while administrators decided whether to kick her off the cheerleading squad. The Riches became so concerned about Heather that they made an appointment with a therapist for the following Thursday, October 3rd, 1996. Insert mean girl joke there. On Wednesday, October 2nd, Gail came home to find a $300 long-distance phone bill, that takes you back to 1996, that Heather had racked up calling friends from church camp, um, a bill that obviously, you know, the family could most certainly not pay, especially with what's been going on with Dwayne and all of his medical bills. Angry and exhausted from the strain of working, you know, 16-hour days, Gail lost her temper. Quote, all you ever do is cost me money, she snapped. Heather retreated to her room, but came to her parents' bedroom later that evening and wished her father, Dwayne, goodnight, telling him she loved him. She ignored her mother, walking past her without meeting her glance. Gail never saw her daughter alive again. That's always how it is, you know? Classic, classic. The next morning, the Riches went to the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department to report Heather missing. Sheriff's deputies refused to take the disappearance seriously, assuring Gail that Heather had probably just run away for a few hours to give her, you know, a scare and advising her to return home. I need to take a sip of my champagne. Gail knew her daughter hadn't run away. It was pretty obvious. Heather's makeup bag, which she never left behind, was still in her bedroom. None of her clothes were missing. And most importantly, her diary was still open on her bed. So major red flags. As Gail made frantic inquiries around town that morning, a friend at Warika High School slipped her the day's absentee list, which I think like this is so key in really helping solve the case. I, I'm sure that they would have been able to narrow it down eventually, but I think that this person really got the investigation going. So she gets the absentee list, which included Heather's now ex-boyfriend, remember, Randy Wood. Gail was able to get Randy on the phone and asked if he had seen Heather. Randy said he hadn't and then added, quote, I was with Josh Bagwell all night till six in the morning. I just, I, wow. High schoolers are just, they live, they, they just live. They never go to sleep. They're just always awake. Randy and Josh Bagwell. Okay. 
this guy, um, they were good friends. They, they did make a curious pair, but you know, opposites attract, whatever. Um, Josh to some was a bit of a snob, you know, a clean cut kind of, you know, pampered 17 year old who lived with his wealthy grandparents. Um, this is a big first name forensic files. Okay. His grandparents were none other than, um, Toad and Hattie Dale Anderson. Yeah. According to locals, the Andersons were always a little bit better than everyone else. Evidently, you know, the townspeople didn't like the fact that they had the newest cars and a big house. They thought it was tacky. Maybe they were just jealous. I don't know. Josh's mother was divorced and lived out of town. And at 16, he moved in with his maternal grandparents who, to put it lightly, liked to indulge him. Um, with little discipline at home, he despised authority. When he was arrested once for drunk driving, again, very young to have already had a drunk driving offense, uh, he had a brief, you know, scuffle with the police officers yelling, quote, I want my fucking attorney, end quote, and was charged with uh, resisting arrest. So that's nice. His white Dodge Stealth was the fanciest car that any teenager had in town, and Randy was awed by his easy wealth, which I'd be jealous too. Stealths are pretty rare since they were only made for maybe a handful of years, and they are kind of cool looking, so I can see why people were envious or jealous, whichever word you want to put on it. Heather was taken with Josh's life of privilege too. Her ongoing flirtation with him had paid off that summer when Josh promised she could ride on the back of his stealth in the homecoming parade, because remember, she was nominated for homecoming queen. However, just like Randy on the day of Heather's disappearance, Josh was also conveniently fucking absent from school. He had just been suspended for three days for cutting class since earlier that week he had attended his friend Dennis Wayne Goss's funeral. I don't, I don't understand why all of these 16-year-olds are friends with these 20-year-olds, but maybe small town Oklahoma, that's how it went. When members of the Rich family questioned Josh, as they did dozens of teenagers around town that day, he gave an underwhelming shrug and said he hadn't seen Heather in a week. So that's a good alibi, yeah? As days went by with no sign of their daughter, the Rich's desperation led them to hire a private detective and to use a friend's bloodhounds to sniff around wooded areas near town. Um, that's pretty crazy that the family was even able to have those options. To be honest, not many people can afford, you know, private detectives or search dogs nonetheless. So that's, I mean, I think that's pretty fascinating. Many tips that came in about Heather's whereabouts circled back to something Gail had not previously known existed, which was Warika's drug culture. She soon discovered that there were several meth labs in town and houses where people dealt drugs on nearly every block. Gail is quoted saying, one of my favorite sentences in this episode, quote, our kids, everyone's kids knew about it. After the sun went down, our town was full of dope. End quote. I hate to break it to you, Gail, but you're naive as fuck because that's literally what happens in most towns. But okay. On the eighth day of the Rich's search, the lone rancher and his granddaughter that I mentioned earlier finally report finding Heather's body in a creek. Quote, there was shock and total disbelief, remembers Mayor Biff Eck. I primarily kept that quote because of that 
top 10 forensic file name, my God, Biff Eck. Continuing the quote, no one could understand how something like this could happen to someone from our town, end quote. I bet you never lock your doors either, Biff. Randy was at school standing at a water fountain when he heard the news that Heather's body had been found. Quote, it was like time stop, he says. Randy was crowned Warika High School's homecoming king the night the news broke out about Heather's body being located. Cringe. Uh, a team of 20 investigators interviewed more than 100 people in the days to come with little luck. Quote, nobody wanted to talk, says Montague County Sheriff Chris Hamilton, one of the Texas investigators working the case. Continuing the quote, there was a party culture up here. The kids didn't want to snitch. There was this code of honor as, you know, this us against the police kind of attitude, end quote. Even the Warika newspaper, the News Democrat, observed that local teenagers were adhering, quote, to a silence that would make the mafia proud, end quote. That was just super lame, so I had to keep it in there. Dwayne and Gail often stopped by the investigation's makeshift command post, which was the old red brick train depot, newly wired with laptops and phone lines, and offered home cooking and words of thanks. But as days and then weeks passed with no progress, a sense of unease settled in. One of the few credible leads was that Heather had sneaked out to go to a party at none other than Josh Bagwell's house the night she vanished. Remember, Randy had told Gail over the phone that he had been at Josh's until six in the morning. But according to Josh, they hadn't seen Heather that night. Only two people that had stopped by Josh's house that night were Randy Wood and our next guest, if you will, Curtis Gamble. Josh's drinking buddy. Uh, I can't imagine having a drinking buddy at 17. What a world. Super cool guy, Curtis Gamble, okay, lived with his grandmother, Rita Robbins, forensic files, in Terrell, just 20 miles downriver from Warika. Let's talk about Rita, shall we? Okay, so according to an article for Texas Monthly, at 64, Rita had spent her whole life on the river and she knew it well. At dusk, she could stare up at the sky and then out at the river and tell whether its water would run red or clear the next day. She knew where the imprints of wagon wheels were still worn deep in the sandstone lining its banks, and where among the wild lilac and blackthorn yucca, gold was rumored to be buried. Rita was a bad bitch. She had both Cherokee and Choctaw blood in her, and her high cheekbones were set against jet black hair and wide, expressive blue eyes that caught the sunlight. And she was eccentric in the way that all people deeply connected to the river are. She had a series of husbands, and for years she sang in a local country and western band singing lonesome love songs. As a girl living on the river's Texas side, she spent countless afternoons fishing on Belknap Creek. Back then, she used to walk the five miles from her house down a dead-end dirt road and sit on the Belknap Creek Bridge, baiting hooks with earthworms and lowering them down below. Years later, she liked to take Curtis fishing there, too. What a coincidence. Rita was disturbed, to say the least, by the news of Heather's death, not only because it happened in her most beloved and secret corner of the river bottom, but also because she intimately knew the anguish and trauma of murder itself. 
Rita's own mother was one of serial killer Henry Lee Lucas's first victims. In 1982, he stabbed her in the heart and shoved her in a wood-burning stove in Ringgold, only a few miles from Belknap Creek. That's one way to go. Uh, In the years that followed, Rita had worried about her grandson, Curtis. He had taken an unloaded gun to school and was sent to a juvenile facility as a result. After that, he got mixed up in drugs and he briefly was committed to a psychiatric hospital at age 17. Quote, Curtis has a mean streak, said one local. He was always raising cane and everyone knew to steer clear of him, end quote. A river rat, as he was called, Curtis was tan and straw-haired with green eyes. He was actually pretty cute. Uh, he, he liked to camp and fish and roam the bottomland, and Rita spent a great deal of time worrying about him. She knew he had been brooding ever since his best friend, Dennis Wayne Goss, again, had committed suicide. Curtis had made some strange remarks to her about his late friend, implying that he thought that Dennis had been murdered and that he hadn't killed himself like everyone thought, and Curtis intended to find out who did it. Rita watched her grandson as she made dinner on the day Heather's body was found, wondering what he knew. He was sitting on the back porch playing her guitar. Quote, They found that missing girl from Wawrika, Rita called out from the kitchen through the screen door. They found her floating in Belknap Creek. End quote. Curtis stopped strumming the guitar and fell silent. Rita began to say more, and he cut her off. Quote, Grandma, I don't give a fuck about that little girl, Curtis replied. So that's nice. Uh, Texas Ranger Lane Aiken arrived at Belknap Creek on the afternoon of October 10th, 1986, when Heather was still floating among the reeds. After crime scene photos were taken, Ranger Aiken waded into the creek with Montague uh, Sheriff Hamilton and gently carried Heather to dry land. Her body was so badly damaged that Heather's parents were never allowed to see her. Heather Rich had been shot nine times, one in the head and eight times in the back with a fucking shotgun. As the murder investigation got underway, Gail was reassured by the presence of the Texas Ranger Aiken. While he had worked dozens of murder cases before, Heather's death would take a greater emotional toll, something his fellow investigators noticed from the moment he carried Heather's body from the creek. Ranger Aiken's only daughter was then a high school cheerleader, an outgoing 15-year-old girl in the North Texas town of Decatur, whom he had done his share of worrying about. This one hits real close to home, Ranger Aiken said. Each night as he drove back to Texas, he wondered what he was overlooking. Quote, it was very hard to leave at the end of the day, knowing we weren't any closer to making an arrest. End quote. The investigation had initially focused on a red herring, a meth dealer Heather may have known, who turned out to have an alibi. Ranger Aiken now began to look more closely at the party Josh had thrown the night of Heather's disappearance. Josh, Curtis, and Randy all claimed they had played dominoes and drank whiskey in the party trailer behind Josh's house that night, and they all insisted they hadn't seen Heather. Ranger Aiken was skeptical. With Paul Smith of the Montague County District Attorney's Office, his partner for the investigation, Ranger Aiken decided to stop by football practice one afternoon and pay Randy a visit. Randy stuck to his story though Ranger Aiken made note of the flat, detached way that he described the evening. 
Paul Smith and Ranger Aiken believed that Randy had rehearsed that story again and again and thought that him telling it kept him from showing any emotion. The next morning, Ranger Aiken finally caught the break he so desperately needed. A local sheriff's deputy discovered that Josh had bought four boxes of shotgun shells at Beaver Hardware in Warica a few days before Heather's murder. Winchester double-aught buckshot, the ammunition that a firearms expert had determined was the kind used by Heather's killer. The owner of Beaver Hardware also identified Curtis Gamble from a photo lineup. He had accompanied Josh to the store. Fucking amateur hour. Paul Smith from the district attorney's office had investigated the brutal murder of Curtis's great-grandmother by Henry Lee Lucas years earlier and knew the family well. What a coincidence. He suggested to Ranger Aiken that they visit Rita Robbins. Rita had not been forthcoming with investigators until then, but when she saw the detective who had helped find her mother's killer, she agreed to talk. Thanks a lot, Rita. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah. During the course of their conversation, Rita mentioned that Curtis had a shotgun, but that he'd said he'd gotten rid of it. Old Blackie, as she called it, was a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun. This is the firearm that investigators would determine was the murder weapon. Only later would it come to light that Curtis Gamble had once bragged about his ultimate fantasy, which was to kidnap a girl, rape her, and then, quote, blow her head off. What a fantasy. Super sexy. He made the claim at the age of only 15 in a juvenile detention center, which this was also made after he was being held after threatening to kill several teachers. That was when he brought the gun to school. So he's a cool guy, obviously, but also it sounds very 15 year oldy to say, you know, ultimate fantasy. I'm going to rape and kill a girl. But boy, does he make it happen. Curtis was most certainly a volatile kid with a long criminal record. He was rumored to have shot other people's livestock for sport and he had broken out of every juvenile facility that held him. That's, I don't know what that is a testament to. Uh, He ran with a rough crowd of meth users, including the late Dennis Wayne Goss, like I mentioned, and in school he terrorized other kids, making boys fight each other by threatening that otherwise they would have to fight him. What a fucking loser. As I mentioned before, at 17, Curtis was briefly committed to a psychiatric hospital. Quote, Curtis Gamble is one of the most violent people I've ever known, Ranger Aiken said. When you're around him, you literally feel like you're in the presence of evil. Um, End quote. Yeah, I, I could see that. Uh, So both assholes, Curtis Gamble and Josh Bagwell, found solace in drinking and hanging out along the river, often camping and fishing together, and they shared a love of guns. Randy was the odd man out, having met Curtis only briefly when they worked one summer in the watermelon fields. What brought them all together the night of Heather's murder had its own simple logic. Josh had a bottle of whiskey and Randy loved to drink. Sidebar, uh, their names are all weird. So like Randy Wood is is too similar to Randy Wools from um, the Betty Stotts episode from just a couple weeks ago. So that weirded me out. And then Gamble and Bagwell are similar but different as well. It just kind of pisses me off. I really hate all three of them. 
So anyways, the story would unravel soon enough when Curtis's bitch ass broke under Ranger Aiken's questioning quote. Gamble knew he was in a bind, so he told us a story that made Randy Wood out to be the killer. He was extremely cooperative and seemed to be enjoying the attention, end quote. Between bites of tacos provided by the police department, Curtis cavalierly offered up the details. Curtis told Ranger Aiken that he didn't even know Heather. He said she snuck out of her house because she and Josh had a date. Curtis explained that he and Randy had left the trailer to give them some time alone. And while they were gone, Josh got Heather drunk and Josh had sex with her for a couple of hours. Nice. Curtis said that when he and Randy got back to the trailer, Heather was hammered and she was kissing on both Curtis and Randy. He said that he and Randy were about to, quote, get a piece, uh, but she passed out. Uh, Woof, that's disgusting. He said that um, the guys all drank more and when Heather woke up, she was crying and screaming. Mm, I can only imagine. Then she passed back out. Josh started freaking out and said he didn't want to go down for raping Heather. Randy was anxious about rape charges, too, Curtis said, because Randy had tried to have sex with Heather while she was passed out. Great. Excellent. Awesome. Love it. It's ironic that that Randy didn't have the balls to fucking ask Heather or initiate sex with Heather when they were together, only when she's passed out and they're broken up. You know, no consent, no even consciousness. It's, it's a great plan. So according to Curtis, Randy carried Heather still unconscious to Josh's pickup and they all drove to the Belknap Creek bridge. Curtis claimed that Randy shot her and told the guys to throw her ass over. Following orders, all of them grabbed Heather and threw her over into the creek. Ranger Aiken had heard a lot in his 20 years of law enforcement, but as he slid the typed confession across the desk for Curtis to sign, he felt sick. Heather's life to these boys had been so easily disposable. He believed most of Curtis's story, though he sensed that Curtis, in fact, had killed her. The murder weapon was his, and the crime scene was a place only he was familiar with. Ranger Aiken's hunch was confirmed when Randy told almost the same story later that night, but with Curtis firing the gun. Randy claimed that Heather had been drifting in and out of consciousness when Curtis raped her. Quote, I had my pants down, but I didn't, Randy said. Wow. How honorable of you, Randy. He continues telling Ranger Aiken when they arrived at the creek, they, quote, sat Heather on the bridge and she fell over. I got back in the truck and I just sat there with my hands covering my face. And that's when I heard the shots. Josh and Curtis were outside. After the shots stopped, I looked up and Curtis had the shotgun, end quote. Randy would pass a polygraph test. Curtis failed his. Take that for what you will. Randy said, quote, I really didn't believe it would happen until we got to the bridge. I hoped Curtis was joking, but when we got out of the truck, he had the shotgun. He was giving orders. He was firing himself up. I let it happen. I was scared to death of him. End quote. Well, I mean, at least he admitted he was a coward and a piece of shit. So, I mean, that's at least it's all not all for not. Not all for not. Is that a phrase? I don't know. 
While Randy was giving his statement to Sheriff Hamilton, Ranger Aiken served the warrant for Josh's arrest. Remember, we got a third loser, okay? In Josh's bedroom were two swords, an SKS assault rifle with a bayonet, another assault rifle, and a book about making bombs, fucking nerd. Though he initially refused to go with the Texas Ranger, he finally relented. As Ranger Aiken drove, he tried to engage Josh in some conversation. Quote, I'm sure you've had some sleepless nights since Heather's murder, Aiken offered. Josh replied, quote, you just woke me up. Did it look like I was having trouble sleeping? End quote. So that's good. Six years later, Ranger Aiken is still infuriated by those words, quote, Josh Bagwell had participated in a crime that devastated an entire community. A family would never know their daughter. Heather would never grow up, never get married, never have children of her own. And his conscience wasn't troubled at all. He could sleep just fine. End quote. Curtis Gamble's capital murder case, which was the first to come to trial, presented a tactical problem. So to convict Josh Bagwell of capital murder, District Attorney Tim Cole needed testimony that Josh knew of the plan to kill Heather before they reached the creek. D.A. Cole had sought the death penalty against Curtis, but during jury selection, a plea bargain was struck, as normally it does. Curtis would, this is the plea bargain, Curtis would admit he shot Heather and testify against Josh if he was spared death. After much agonizing, the Riches agreed that the state should accept the deal, even though it meant foregoing the death penalty for their daughter's killer. Moments after Curtis Gamble pled guilty and was given a 30-year sentence, he flew into a rage grabbing the bailiff by the neck and trying to choke him. It took six men to wrestle Curtis to the ground, including Ranger Lane Aiken, who leaped out of the um, kind of the audience or the spectator section to put him in a stranglehold. This guy, uh, Curtis is literally the fucking worst. Even with Curtis's testimony, D.A. Cole harbored doubts about winning a conviction against Josh Bagwell. Josh had refused to give a statement to investigators. He, he was literally the only one of the three boys to not admit his guilt or to take a polygraph test. And I think primarily this is because his family had hired a team of high-priced defense attorneys to secure his acquittal. The case against him rested largely on the word of Curtis and Randy, who could implicate Josh in the murder scheme, but who could also compromise their credibility by pointing fingers at each other for pulling the literal trigger. Before the trial, Josh bragged to his friends that there wasn't enough evidence to try him. D.A. Cole said, quote, his family's attitude was that I was a country bumpkin who couldn't win this case and that Josh hadn't done anything wrong. They had the arrogance to bring his sports car, this uh, Dodge Stealth, to the courthouse while the jury was deliberating because they were so sure the jury was going to let him off, end quote. From the first day of the state of Texas versus Joshua Luke Bagwell, the defense elected to put Heather's character on trial, painting her as a promiscuous drunk. 
Little was said about the boy's own alcoholism or enthusiasm for casual sex, only Heather's supposed indiscretions. Uh, This is good. Uh, Meaning it's awful. The subtext of the defense's argument was that Josh could not have raped Heather because she was, I don't even want to say this, um, she was always ready and willing, whatever that means. Um, Defense attorney John Zelpst, (laughs) forensic files, good luck spelling that one. John Zelpst went so far as to cross-examine Gail about each of her daughter's failings her smoking, her bulimia, and her marijuana use, and meth use, stating, quote, she was your perfect child, but she wasn't quite perfect, right? End quote. Uh, I, I don't have words for that. That's just fucking bullshit. Anyways, so Josh sat quietly at the defense table taking notes on a yellow legal pad, I bet, What the jury could not see beneath his suit were his jailhouse tattoos. Among them, a swastika and other white power symbols adorned his arms. Nor did the jury know that Josh had not only tried to incite a riot on his cell block, but also threatened to kill several guards and he attacked a police officer. Guards also discovered a hole he had chipped through the cinder block walls. Like, who the hell are these kids? What was in the water in Oklahoma in the late 1990s? Who the fuck raised these demon teenagers? This isn't like teenage Shawshank for fucking Demption. This guy, all the guys are nightmares, okay? Oh my God, we were all afraid that Josh was going to walk, said D.A. Cole. Though Curtis had originally agreed to testify against Josh, he failed to honor his fucking plea agreement. Big shock. Insisting that it was Randy, not himself, who shot Heather, and that Josh had known nothing of the murder plot. That night, Tim Cole got word of yet another setback for the prosecution. Randy, who was scheduled to testify the next day, was backing out of his plea bargain as well. Tim Cole thought all was lost. But Randy Wood had something else in mind. Conscious-stricken, he still wanted to testify against Josh, but he would not accept a plea bargain in return, for fear that it would taint the veracity of his testimony in the eyes of the jury. So, Randy sacrificed his future, doing what no one who worked this case can remember a defendant ever doing. He turned down a 40-year sentence with the possibility of parole after 30 years, and testified anyway, thereby incriminating himself and subjecting himself to, at best, a mandatory life sentence for murder. At worst, he would face a death sentence. Randy's attorney urged him to take the deal, but Randy had made up his mind. Quote, I wanted everyone to know I was telling the truth. I owed that to Heather and her family. End quote. Yeah, you know what you do, you piece of shit. You essentially participated in the gang rape and fucking murder of your ex-girlfriend and lied to everyone about it. Fuck you, Randy. I'm not a fan at all. The next day, Randy testified that Josh had known full well of the plan to kill Heather. Contrary to the defense's story, Josh was present in the trailer when the plot was hatched to shoot her. Can you imagine being passed out, being 16 and passed out? being almost homecoming queen 16 and passed out and three guys plotting your rape and murder. 
while you're lying completely unconscious in a trailer in small town Shitsville, Oklahoma. The worst, right? I can't imagine. So back to Randy's supposed, you know, story. So contrary, like I said, to the defense's story, Josh was present in the trailer. And before the shooting, he had actually helped carry her from the pickup truck to the bridge, Randy said. And afterward, he had weighed her body down with a rock and helped throw her into the creek. This is good stuff. Josh took the stand next, giving a convincing performance of a polite, respectful 18-year-old. Josh testified that he hadn't known about the plan to kill Heather and that it was Randy who had killed her. Once only did Josh stray from the script, but it was a costly slip. After hearing gunshots while urinating near the bridge that night, he said he ran back to see what had happened. Then he testified in the present tense as if watching the events unfold before him. Quote, I see Curtis, or I mean, excuse me, I see Randy lowering the gun. End quote. You fucking idiot. Just, you, you, no, 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 no. I'm so glad he slipped up. That really helped. <laughs> I mean, it really did. The jury found Josh guilty of capital murder, suck it, Josh, which carried an automatic life sentence and a um, and of conspiracy to commit murder for which the jury assessed a 99-year sentence to be served concurrently. Gail kissed Heather's signet ring over and over as the jury read its verdict, silently rocking back and forth in her seat. In addition to his sports car, Josh's family had taken to the courthouse dozens of balloons and presents for him, you know, so sure that, you know, he would be acquitted. Uh, That's pretty embarrassing. Now, the, you know, family sat stunned in silence. Quote, my son, oh, my son, (laughs) he is no angel, but he damn sure is no murderer. His mother, Sharice Smith told reporters um sorry sister friend but like newsflash your son is an overindulged conniving rapist and murderer so yeah get with the program heather's murder is um it's so leopold and loeb-esque you know the like these two pieces of shit more or less i mean i guess you could say three more or less plan to execute or plan and execute this this awful crime, but neither think they'll really get caught. And even if they do, they could really care less, couldn't care less about Heather. You know, even though I despise Randy as well, at least he was honest and tried to fix what he fucked up, you know? So before Josh was led away, Gail was allowed to say a few words to him directly. As she began to speak, imploring him to never forget Heather or the horror of his crime, Josh's relatives stood up and filed out of the courtroom. Gail said, quote, by your family exiting, I see why you are the way you are. You haven't ever had to pay for the mistakes you've made, but you're going to now. You took away the most important thing in our life, end quote. Randy would stand trial later that year and be found guilty of capital murder. He, too, must serve a mandatory life sentence and will not be eligible for parole until the year 2036, 
when he will be 57 years old. Uh, Like, I know it might be hard, a little hard on Randy, but to me, there is zero difference in what Josh and Curtis did and what Randy did not do. He stood by and let this happen to Heather, and I know he was drunk and probably terrified, but what a fucking coward and and spineless person to stand by and watch two of your supposed friends rape your ex-girlfriend and then almost rape her yourself while she is passed out and then listen to them plan her execution and do nothing at all is just fucking unbelievable and fucking pathetic. I, I cannot put myself in that scenario. I, w- I don't know how I would react, but uh, I don't know. Maybe it was like, I never got to fuck her when we were together. And so this is like my chance or I just want to look cool in front of these guys because they're, they're, they're my friends. And he's this, you know, again, like we mentioned, wrong side of the tracks kind of vibe. And he just wants to fit in. I don't really know what his motivation was to do anything or not do anything, But um, again, like I said earlier, not a fan, Randy. So while DA Tim Cole is deservedly proud of his victories in these trials, he is subdued when he speaks of the teenager who, late in the game, found the strength of character to own up to his crime and pay for it dearly. Quote, I don't feel very good about Randy Wood being in prison for the rest of his life. I tried every way in the world to get him to plead guilty, but he would not take the plea. I'm sure there was some self-interest in his decision. He wanted people to know he didn't kill Heather, but I will forever believe it's because he had a conscience, end quote. Cole's opinion is shared by Gail, who speaks of Randy with a bittersweet smile and says he is redeemed in her eyes, quote, Heather lay in that creek for eight days and he didn't tell me, so he must be punished. But a lifetime is too much for Randy. End quote. Um, I have to disagree with you, Gail, but um, that's just my opinion. On January 28th, 2002, just before midnight, Curtis Gamble and Josh Bagwell slipped out of the Montague County Jail and fled with two other inmates into the North Texas Plains. The Montague Four, as they were soon known on TV news bulletins, escaped after taking a guard hostage with a homemade knife, forcing the only other guard on duty to open an outside gate. Though Curtis and Josh had been incarcerated in state prison, they had been transferred to Montague County earlier that month for Curtis to be prosecuted by Tim Cole on charges of the um, conspiracy to commit murder situation. Curtis was convicted on January 16th and given a life sentence, ensuring that he would spend the rest of his life in prison without the possibility of parole. Curtis and Josh headed to the place they knew best, the Red River. Despite a massive manhunt with hundreds of lawmen from Texas and Oklahoma, the escapees traced their way through gullies and dry washes back to Belknap Creek, hiding in caves along the river bottom. That is just so creepy. I hate water. I hate the bottoms of water. Gross, 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 gross. Heather Rich's killers went unseen for more than a week, holing up in a hunting cabin, then stealing a flatbed truck. That's pretty sick. And a 22 caliber revolver from Dennis Wayne Goss's parents' home. Like it just shows you how like they're still living in their fucking teenage years, 
who who do we know who has a gun? Oh, old Dennis, our 25-year-old friend Dennis. Like, it's just pathetic. Fucking pathetic. Up and down the river, people loaded their guns and stayed indoors while local law enforcement braced for a bloody shootout. But after nine days on the lam, Curtis and Josh found themselves surrounded by dozens of lawmen at a convenience store in Ardmore, Oklahoma, and surrendered after six hours of negoti- negotiation with the FBI. I just like, can you imagine being that like, um, like the guy behind the counter, like the employee of that convenience store? What a shift, right? As Curtis was being led away in handcuffs, he locked eyes with Jefferson County Sheriff Stan Barnes. Quote, I'll be seeing you again, Curtis told him with a cocky smile. Several weeks later, prison guards prevented yet another escape when they discovered that Josh's mother, bitch-ass Charisse, Charisse, whatever, had slipped Curtis and Josh hacksaw blades hidden inside none other than two Bibles. The last report I saw was in regarding this was in 2002, stating that she was awaiting trial and can face and could face up to 30 years for that dumb shit. So um, who knows? I also saw this. is This is redemption for me because I talk so much shit about her. Uh, her first name was actually Tawana Tawana Tawana. And she only just went by Charisse Charisse. I, I can see why, even though both are kind of hard to say for me. So obviously, you know, that deserves a forensic files to Juana and Sharice. Fun fact, um, Sheriff Barnes reopened the investigation into Dennis Wayne Goth's Goss Gosses Goth Gosses. How do you say that? Gosses, plural. His death, Dennis's death, which was ruled a suicide, like we mentioned by his predecessor, quote, Goss was a good friend of Curtis Gamble's and he was shot one week before Heather. It was made to look like a suicide, but the shell casing next to him didn't match the wadding found in his head wound. Fucking love a good forensic moment. He told his dad he feared for his life. End quote. Obviously, I added that fucking forensic moment, but it's so exciting to see how all of that matches up. I just love a good twist and turn when it comes to these stories. So Sheriff Barnes believes there is a connection between the two deaths and that Heather might have actually known something she wasn't supposed to know about the Goss murder. His opinion is widely shared around Warika. Now in his 40s, Randy has tried hard to put distance between himself and the boy he was that night on Belknap Creek. Um, I can see why. While his co-defendants were classified as some of Texas's most ill-behaved inmates before, even before the jailbreak, Randy has a spotless record. He now works on the prison garden crew, that's pretty sick, digging flower beds and pruning shrubs. He said, quote, Heather is the first thing I think of in the morning and the last thing at night. I punished myself worse than anything in this prison ever could, end quote. Good. I think that that's fair. Curtis Gamble is up for parole on Halloween of 2026. He is currently in the Wynn facility. Wynn, I think that's how you pronounce it. In Huntsville, Texas. Josh Bagwell and Randy Wood are up for parole in November of 2036. Which is fascinating because it's like we all know that Curtis was the one that actually fucking pulled the trigger. But he gets 10 years. He is available. Or excuse me. He is up for parole 10 years before Josh and Randy. Fascinating. 
Anyway, those two guys, Randy is at the Allred facility in Iowa City, Texas. Never knew that that was a city. And Josh is in the Cofield, Caulfield facility in Tennessee Colony, Texas. What's with Texas naming all these cities? Tennessee and Iowa City. I don't, I don't understand. Gail and Dwayne, this is upsetting, divorced after the murder, which isn't really surprising. I feel like that's a pretty common problem or result when it comes to children being murdered or having a murder in a family. It really tears relationships apart from every direction and every which way. Both actually moved away from Warika. I totally understand that as well. The bridge at Belknap Creek is still pocked with the buckshot that tore apart Heather's body and is scarred with tiny fissures that fan out along the bridge's concrete edge. If I'm ever in that area, I'm totally going to take pictures and be there. I know that people find that as like true crime, like um, trauma porn is what they call it, but I don't care. It's fascinating. It's history. It should be remembered. Also, this is sick. They're in faded blue spray paint. Someone has scrawled the words murderers. So... And that is the murder of Heather Rich. Fuck you, Randy, Curtis, and Josh. Randy, not as much, but still. I don't have any questions or theories, but if you do, please reach out to me and let me know what you think. Lastly, I did want to let y'all know that in addition to the Investigation Discoveries A Time to Kill episode, I was featured in discussing Shelly Nance's murder, who I covered in episode 23 of the podcast, I am also in two episodes of Court TV's Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. One of them, I discuss the murder of Penny Skaggs. The title of the episode is A Perfect Wife or The Perfect Wife, I think. And I covered Penny in episode 44. Um, and then I'm also in the episode called Blue Eyed, The Blue-Eyed Butcher, which discusses the murder of Susan Wright, which Cassie covered in, I think, episode 13. I cannot remember. I'll link them in the show notes if you want to find out where to watch them. I think this is going to be released before The Blue-Eyed Butcher comes out. So go to Court TV and uh, type in someone they knew with Tamron Hall and it'll show up. Both of those are for free. Investigation Discovery, I think you might have to have a uh, either regular cable subscription to it or, um, you know, find it elsewhere. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I got it for free. I can't link it because then you would have access to my, 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 my stuff. So that would be weird. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will be back at some point with more Texas true crime. I have a good one coming up. I have a family annihilator. So anyway, yeah, that, look forward to that. And if anyone's listening, happy episode 60 and happy Halloween.